Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to this week's DevSecOps Coffee Chat. I'm Kirsten Patton, the Working Group Manager at ATARC. The purpose of this series is to provide a platform that invites change agents to share their journey of digital transformation and expand upon their passion and purpose. We want this audience to learn more about digital and IT transformation with evolving technology and a focus on DevOps. The speakers we invite on are effectively improving mission enablement and user experience. These are leaders in the federal space that inspire, educate, and promote innovation and collaboration. Grab your coffee and get ready to hear this Tuesday's inspiring story. I'm now gonna hand it over to the host of this series, Jennifer Kenny-Smith. Hello, hello, good afternoon. It's Jennifer Kenny-Smith. I'm the Area Sales Manager of Civilian Sales at GitLab, and it is my distinct privilege to introduce my new friend, Nagesh, Nagesh Rao, the acting CIO of the Bureau of Industry and Security at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Thank you, Jennifer. And thank you, Kirsten, for setting this up. I'm, I'm very excited to participate in this podcast today. Yeah, this kind of came to us organically as we've been speaking to different leaders and visionaries within the government and your name came up as you are moving and shaking and doing really creative things to make an impact. So I'm really excited to have some time with you. Um, so to start, I always ask my new friends, where have you come from? What brought you to your current role? And what are you most excited about in the role that you're doing today? Oh, <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, well, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, I guess. I, uh, I, uh, I'm at my current job at Commerce uh, after having a productive seven years at the U.S. Small Business Administration, and and prior to that, I've been in the private and and public sector and and nonprofit sector over the last 20 plus years of my career. But my my current endeavor that brought me to Bureau of Industry and Security was. Uh, was uh, Jeremy Pelter, who's the deputy undersecretary. He he and I worked together at the U.S. Small Business Administration, and and uh, he had some work that needed to get done at BIS, and asked if I'd be interested in um, in coming over and helping evolve the IT platforms at the bureau and and uh, leapfrog the technical debt of 12 plus years. But uh, I'd say I got my start into IT career pivot and IT management. During my final years at SBA, Maria wrote, had, who was the CIO at the time, had recruited me down to her shop, having seen some of the work I had done in the Office of Investment Innovation around SBIR programs, and both policy and programmatic-wise. And she thought, you know, you know, I was having fun up there, and maybe I could bring some of the talent I had, some of the efforts I had created, juice that I had put there in, in that office, and helped with the enterprise efforts at the OCIO shop that transformed that agency's you know, means of digital engagement, digital thinking. So uh, that, you know, that, that's that been my current life. I, I, I'm, I tend to do a career pivot every three to five years or something of the sort. So, you know, prior lives have included working in patent law and uh, venture capital, private equity and, and nonprofit management. But I, uh, I've always had an affinity for public sector and public service. And, and I've always found it fulfilling to be able to be of service to others. And so it's probably uh, the, the most apt answer as to why I'm currently in my current role is just because I like to get things done and, and make a meaningful impact with the work I do. Yeah, and you're direct, right? So you've been climbing the government and corporate ladder, um, yeah. very focused on where you want to get. And 
in the current role to be acting CIO, soon to be CIO, hopefully. Um, can you share a little bit with the listeners of somebody that's maybe interested in moving up that path, very prestigious to be able to make an impact and shift and change and have that direction and insight to tie back to creating the technology to meet or exceed the mission and also your experience with CX um, from SBA. We talked to Amber Chaudhry, who really helped um, share and teach why CX experience should be at the forefront of designing new technology. So could you give us a little um, kind of what did what were the steps you took to ensure to really kind of have a laser focused crystal clear vision on how to get as you're climbing the ladder to this seat you're at today? Sure. No, thank you. And I, I think it's fortunate for me that it's grounded in part due to my parents. Um, you know, they were immigrant entrepreneurs that hustled and bustled their way from India, from the back country of India to the U.S. And, and so watching them work hard to, you know, generate something from nothing uh, was instilled into me and my sisters. And so that, that notion of like being driven and ambitious and, and uh, doing good work and, and always delivering was that ethos was instilled into all of us. And I, I would say part of what's driven me to go forward over the years is just that I uh, is that thirst for knowledge and that that thirst to learn and and adapt and grow and I, I think it's it behooves us to constantly be learning and constantly be growing if you want to be impactful with the work you do and what's been interesting for me I think in part is that I I wanted to constantly learn and, and develop new skill sets you know I started off as a materials engineer working in you know, semiconductor R&D work and stuff of that nature, and then pivoted over to patent law and, and then got my MBA over time and, and, and stuff like that. And I just, I think part of it was that I would do my projects and always deliver on, on the efforts at hand, but make time, you know, after work or, or on the weekends learning and constantly refining and developing my skill sets further through extracurricular activities, which, you know, whether it be in my personal life serving on boards of organizations, companies, nonprofits, whatnot, or, or in, engaging in, you know, fellowships like Merzine Fellowship at the National Academy of Sciences or the Eisenhower Fellowship Program, and, and, and always working with uh, other fellow change agents, whether they're from the public, private, or nonprofit sector, and working on passion projects and collaborative opportunities that helped us move the needle um, in, in trying to ensure uh, better access to opportunities for those who, who wanted it. Um, and, and I think it's been interesting from the public sector perspective because with government, that serves the people. The people are, are the end beneficiaries of that. And so it's cognizant, it behooves us to ensure that our services are fully realized um, appropriately and, and more so equitably so that people don't have to try to figure out the labyrinth that is government, but actually get a little bit more of that, as you were saying, direct and, and to the point kind of bits of information. And so, you know, I'm glad that you talked to Amber Chadbury because she, she's been a phenomenal leader at SBA on the CX front. And I, when I recruited her over to our team to help lead off those efforts enterprise-wide, it was because we wanted to look at customer experience from both uh, human and digital perspective and figuring out how to ensure that digital engagement can ensure a better experience altogether. Um, 
and, and if anything, this pandemic has shown us that that digital engagement, digital collaboration is is so important right now. I mean, with everyone in a remote work setting, you know, IT has evolved itself ten plus years very quickly over the last few months, just because the, the demands and and the requirements have changed drastically as everyone is operating from different uh, standing points with their their tools of the, of the trade. Yeah. Amazing points. I'm taking notes. I totally agree with you with the growth. Um, I I feel like if if any living thing, if it's not growing, it's dying. So we have, we always have this opportunity to continue to grow, to learn, to um, collaborate. I love that Um, your insight and wherewithal to go outside of your current or existing role, whether it was more school or education or different groups, it's proven that you become like the five people you surround yourself with. So if we're not, again, growing by other people helping influence us or shape us or inspire, motivate, mentor, coach, um, we're not going to grow. So well done there to continue to increase your skills and give, have more to contribute. Right. Um, And that's Yeah. yeah, And sorry, I just, I wanted to build off on that a little bit further. I mean, I think folks who get stuck in that career ladder of like just that same monotonous job over and over, you're going to get stuck in that same hamster cycle, you know, the hamster in the the wheel. And so uh, it it is really important to change and do career pivots and, and constantly picking career paths that help you grow and and motivate your growth. Um, My experiences and and the reason why I feel, uh, you know, the success has come pretty well in the public sector for me is because I've got, that prior experience, that that prior experience is both in the nonprofit and private, and being able to switch in and out uh, helps ensure better service. Because if you're just a government bureaucrat who's done that for 30 plus years and that's all you've done, um, your only language is government and public sector, and you're not going to understand the other side of the coins. Um, the the nonprofit and the the private sectors need the government just as much as the government needs them. It's a it's a synergistic, um, uh, symbiotic relationship. And so the goods, the, the, the gives and gets between those different organizations are, are, are very crucial. And so I can't be a more effective public steward if I don't have the experience of being on the other side of the coin of someone at an organization, at a nonprofit or a private sector who is utilizing those goods and services in the first place to help, you know, scale up and grow my company or organization. Yeah. Yeah. I love this. Shout out to your parents too, of their influence <laughs> and um, the work ethic that you learned from them definitely shows. Yeah. Shows. They, they came from the back country. They, you know, my, my wife w- came with me to India last summer and she saw where my parents came from and she was like, okay, I, I get it. <laughs> like we're talking water was well water. Mm-hmm. Um, electricity was, you know, brownouts happened all the time blackouts and brownouts happened all the time like you know there was no bed it was the floor and a bunch of mats on the ground yeah they must be so proud of you thank you all right so let's talk about your current role and what you're excited about i know you do a lot with digital transformation i the a lot of the folks listening will want to hear any insights or nuggets you have around devsecops i knew we talked briefly about security there's a lot of major 
security threats and infiltrations happening currently as we speak the last few weeks. Um, if there's any anything you want to share insights around that that you're able to speak to. Um, but overall, tell me about this new role that you have and what you're most excited about and what you're what you're going to be doing or what you've sure. Started. So so when, when the you know, uh, when Andre Mendez and Jeremy Pelter and the team at Commerce had uh, approached me to come join the Commerce team at, at Bureau of Industry and Security to help with the technological transformations that were happening there, um, that needed to happen there for that bureau. It was uh, it it was a pretty cool opportunity. I could not say no to, and and it was funny because I had I was leaving SBA at the height of the efforts on PPP and IDLE, so I had just finished doing the technology technical transformation at SBA, uh, including leading the technology solutions that were deployed for both the PPP and IDLE programs. And, uh, and, and that summer of 2020, you know, back in June, I, I, I opted to take the job at Commerce because I, you know, I had done my time in service for SBA and I built a good solid team over there at, for the IT transformation there to continue on without me. And, and it was time for me to learn and grow. And, and, um, and my friends and colleagues had mentioned to me, you know, you've gotten great experience now working IT systems on the commercial financial side. But, you know, if you, and, and I felt it too, you know, having an opportunity to build out transformation systems on the national security and law enforcement side would be a really good uh, pivot and, and a growth opportunity for me because the, the IT systems for those kind of bureaus and agencies for the federal government are very different than the, the civilian employees. And so because the Bureau of Industry Security is a very interesting bureau, it's a national security and law enforcement bureau within a civilian agency like commerce. So it, it, it gets it gets really unique because our, our needs have to mirror more that of our, our brethren on the intelligence community or Department of Defense or Department of Justice. And so it the you know the Bureau of Industry and Security is a is a very fascinating mission because it deals with all things around export policy and export control for companies small, medium and large that wish to export you know goods and services abroad and you have to get a license for that and and it's to it's typically around um high-end technology solutions that are being exported so we're talking dual use technologies we're talking uh you know advanced manufacturing robotics um it whatnot so it, it's a we're you know a regulatory body and we have a very unique Fully pulpit in in that world of of export control, and so the needs of our bureau uh, split into two parts. There's export administration that deals with all the export licensing and policy parameters around what you know technology, goods, and services are allowed to be exported and what are not. And then export enforcement is the other side of the house, which handles the enforcement of who has the appropriate ex exporting license pa licensing paperwork. Uh, for companies that are allowed to export and those who are not, and 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 not to get into more because I don't want to get into the sensitive side of, of it all, but um, but but it's a very important mission because you've got a lot of companies that do export exporting of of exotic goods and services, and so we have to, um, as a regulatory and enforcement body, ensure that it is appropriate and 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 the stuff that is being exported is what it is they said they are doing and not you know some sort of laundering or money laundering scheme or or uh, exporting of, of munitions or whatnot that are not supposed to be exported to certain countries 
you know, we're, it's very sensitive stuff. And, and we work a lot with the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, you know, um, Department of Defense, whatnot, to prevent, you know, illicit goods and services being uh, exported to countries that, you know, might not be, be favorable to, to export to at this time due to due conflicts and whatnot. So it, it, gets, um, it gets really unique. And so from an IT perspective, it, it's fascinating for us because we have to maintain uh, the, the FISMA high systems and be a bit more uh, concrete and foundational with our platforms so that they're effective uh, from a, not only data fiduciary perspective of, uh, of analyzing which companies are allowed to export what, but also uh, more importantly, ensuring the, the secrecy and protectiveness of the information uh, around there so that we're not uh, putting ourselves in a position of, of, uh, of a compromising. You know, the export enforcement team does some really important work and uh, work, I think a lot of folks don't realize, but they play a big role when it comes to enforcement and, and prevention of, of illicit goods. And, and, you know, you've got dummy companies and cartels and whatnot that try to take advantage or, or utilize information to, to their own gain. And so they do, a, you know, a job of protecting the country. They're protecting our, the country and making sure that certain technologies are, do not fall into the wrong hands. Awesome. I'm sure a lot of people didn't know that about your agency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think no, well, I mean, it's on, it's on the website and stuff, but yeah, we're, we're small, we're small, but we're part of the national security apparatus and, and it's, yeah, we're, we're helping protect the homeland front. Yeah. So in regards to the digitization of that type of data and um, your DevSecOps tools, um, I know you are forward leaning enough to understand the importance of security around the developing of new apps. So as you're yeah. pro presenting the new, and you've said something similar to, you can create a widget, but if the data is not secure, it's the, you owe the consumer of that data to have secure data. So can you share a little bit about the philosophy behind that and why that is important as you're looking at new, new development, new applications, um, how do you get your security team involved at the soonest? Yeah, so uh, what's really important for us from uh, that DevSecOps model is, is that as you're iterating and and further refining, you know, technology application development. Um, one, it's got to be operationally, you know, viable so folks can actually work with it and, and do what it is that the application is supposed to do. But that, that secure transaction and that secure um, engagement is really important because you don't want information or, or the tools to be compromised. And so that cybersecurity element is really important because we are the public um, sector. We are, we, we already have a bullseye on the back of our head because we're the public sector. And, and uh, it's, I have friends from prior lives who, who have engaged in the hacking front. I remember when I was in college and I had a, a, a friend who, it was a classmate who, who was an ex-hacker of the sort. And, and I, and it was, you know, I, when, as you get older, you start to understand how more complicated the world is, as, as I guess, because at the time when I was 18, 19, I was like, oh, that's cool. And now I'm at, I'm like 40 plus and I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. And I think part of that is, you know, the power of the internet and, and seeing how important data fidelity and data transparency and data accountability is. And, and the fact, how our data is harnessed and utilized, you know, for good and bad. I mean, technology is agnostic. Um, 
And so it was really interesting, you know, I remember, you know, and these were old college friends of mine. I haven't been in touch with them for years, but you know, they would say, oh yeah, you know, it's like a rite of passage to hack or deface a government website almost. Oh, it is, it's a rite of passage for a lot of those folks. And so, you know, they think, ha ha, funny, I pants to you. But for us um, on the public sector side, it, it's a black eye mm -hmm. and it, it impacts us because all of a sudden we're now waylaid with more bureaucracy and more red tape as to figure out why did that happen? How did it happen? Who was asleep at the wheel? Was anyone asleep at the wheel? And then, and, and um, you know, this looks bad and, 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 and the, the politics get around it, you know, between the big P and the little P. It's like, there's no room for error in the public sector because everyone's demanding perfection. Um, but government itself is made up by the people and people themselves are imperfect, but we have to be perfect. And so it's a pretty stressful situation from an IT perspective of like, you can never fail because if you do fail, people lose trust. And if people lose trust, that, that erodes you know, the very foundation of what we are as a democracy. And so it's, it's really, it's why it's so important that our operational gears are always functioning. And, and I use this adage that IT is a 24 seven contact sport. And although we all want to rest and, and, and take a moment to breathe, I can tell you right now during the holidays, I was checking my email. I was doing work. I was keeping abreast of stuff. Now, did I take time to turn off and enjoy some time with my family? Yes, I did try. But at the same time, I still have, it was my it was my responsibility as a public servant to ensure that our systems did not fail, and so that's why it's really important from that DevSecOps model that when we build out our foundational architecture for these IT services, that not only do they work and work really well and be efficient, but um, they're impactful, effective, and don't fail as much as possible. And when they do that we can rectify it pretty quickly. Um, because if it can't be rectified pretty quickly, you, you get folks losing trust. Yeah, I love the IT is a 24-hour contact sport. I feel like it's almost multidimensional too because there's stuff coming from what feels like the future into the present yeah. and you're still dealing with things from the past, um, especially what your mission is today about you know, revitalizing your IT organization altogether. Um, yeah. All right, so let's shift into really understanding how you are encouraging and empowering your team in regards to cultural shift for change. There's, um, I always have, it's semi of a debate between is the culture, is change happening within the agency happening from cultural shift or from IT? IT seems to be faster to shift it because the technology is agile, it's quick, it's proactive and then culture lines up or it comes from the top it's coming from your leadership your vision to ensure that you are able to meet or exceed the mission obviously your mission is very critical it is um something you probably handle with kick gloves understanding how secure that data needs to be and not getting into the wrong hands um so do you, what is your what is your vision and what are your thoughts on cultural change comes from personnel and from the top down or empowering the people or are you more leaning towards change happens from technology and the people start to evolve as the technology improves and increases the, the shift? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Jennifer. And I would say it's a mix of both. Um, so I, I, I fully admit I'm a technocrat and, uh, and I 
I'm a big believer in the use of technology, but but I uh, to help solve problems. But I what I try to tell folks again is is like is it technology or is it people or is it a mix of both? Like when you're trying to ensure positive change and positive growth, um, you have to right, pick the right tool in the toolbox. And and sometimes it's a technology solution and sometimes it's not. And um, you know that that change that the way I work with my team is one of empowerment and accountability. So I will give them a lot of leniency and, and, and fortitude to one, I, you know, with me and my, my deputy CIO, uh, Kevin Coyne, who's been fantastic to work with. You know, we've been empowering and encouraging trainings and, and leadership development programs. And, you know, I had one of my folks take, take the offer we put on the table and said, look, we'll help you upskill and scale, scale your skills up better. And they got into the public partnership for public services you know, excellence in governments program. And so they loved it. They, it was the first time they were really exposed to public policy thinking as a technocrat and understanding that, 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 um, that cross-disciplinary play that needs to happen between um, technology and policy and, and good governance. I think part of it too is understanding how to help folks be a bit more adaptable uh, to, to the changing of the situation. Um, and I give a lot of credit over to commerce leadership, right? So, so besides, you know, Jeremy Peltzer doing a great job with uh, uh, helping with BIS and, and the team there with Carol Rose and, and, and team, the, um, on, the career, on the career side, I, I would also say the Office of Secretary side. So, so Andre Mendez, Larry Anderson, and, and those folks, they've been very uh, innovative in, in, in unleashing enterprise solutions for all of commerce's bureaus and agencies to utilize them. And, and, and Andre has done a good job in trying to get all the different bureaus and agencies, whether it's Patent and Trademark Office, NOAA, Census, you know, Bureau of Industry and Security, all of us, MBDA, Economic Development Administration, we're all under the commerce umbrella and getting all of us IT professionals from the different bureaus talking and, and goal aligning and working with each other. And so what part of what I've been doing is trying to get my folks on my team to break out of the silos of being only internally to BIS and working with the other IT professionals across commerce, but then also breaking out of that and working with IT professionals in the public and private sector and 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 learning new learning new tools of the trade. I, you know, we got stuck on a problem earlier on this summer as we were getting ready to do the migration. You know, we recently deployed Windows 10 devices across the BIS and made a lot of headway there, getting off the Windows 7 and eradicating our our, our dependency on some of those legacy systems and we're in the process of migrating to the cloud and by mid-January we'll have completed our transformation on the email front of migrating from on-premise to uh, a cloud solution so we're, we're halfway done and we're almost there and we you know the team's been working at it over the last few weeks and we're getting there but what was fascinating was <clears throat> what was important to me I realized is that you know commerce may not have all the solutions so I reached out to Ron Boutre, Justice and a few other folks and said any playbooks or, or ideas on how to modernize, you know, a national security law enforcement bureau's, you know, technology solutions that, you know, 12 plus years old. And they had just recently done it themselves at Justice. So Ron put me in touch with some of the folks on his team to, to help go through a similar pr premise that we were going through because our, our email system was a, a bit um, a bit more complicated than, than some of the other folks' email systems they had. And so they had gone through what we did and all we did was just reiterate off their playbook and 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 develop it for ourselves. And it's actually something I've been bringing up at the CIO boot camp that Maria Rowe and Dave Shive have been doing, where I said, you know, I've seen these 
playbooks, digital playbooks for the civilian agencies, but I haven't really seen one for the Defense and Intelligence and National Security Council. And, and I asked, is there a community practice? Is there stuff around there? And it, it, and I think there might be a couple things is what I've been researching and find out, but it's not really active. And so it's an opportunity for, uh, you know, again, part of the reason why the allure of what brought me over to BIS was to see if I could help evangelize on, on our front with our brethren agencies to create these digital playbooks and, and, uh, and help ensure cross-pollination across our different IT professional workforces so that we can actually be more effective on the solutions we develop and deploy for the people. Yeah, I love that. Even maybe a working group or, you know, buddies. Yeah. I know that um, HR has working groups for DevOps and AI and um, cloud. So there's a place to get to have your team or other teams get involved. But yeah, knowledge is power, right? Um, so yeah. if you've learned something to be able to share best practices and help our other sister brother agencies to move, move together. Right. Why not? I love that um, thought leadership that you have. So in regards to the, the change, the cultural shift, the tech shift, working collaboratively, um, how are you going to measure that? How will you know if it's actually impactful, if you are seeing progress? What's a way that you're going to measure that internally? So, I, you know, the, there's a short and long-term kind of measurement. And, you know, I've got a few folks helping me figure out the three to five-year strategy plan forward. But part of the initial kind of measurement barometer that I'm looking at is whether or not folks are adapting to the change and then adopting the new solutions that are being deployed. If if they're not adapting or adopting, then you know that's going to be a question of whether or not the tool is appropriate. You know, it, it, you get you get an answer. It's either well, did the solution we developed was it not appropriate? Um, was it a non-event or was it? Um, not addressing the problem like we thought it would and so if people are not adapting and adopting I, I think right off the bat that's a telltale sign of like okay do we have to go back to the drawing board and figure out what is required to help uh, help folks understand that the technology solutions we're trying to deploy are uh, to their benefit and helping them be more effective and efficient with the work they do Good. I like that. Um, and then so branching off of that internal change, um, how about the customer experience? How will you evaluate that? I know that you are a big proponent of that and bringing that into the inception of developing new applications, new um, ways to serve up the way that the consumers are touching the data. How are you going to measure that success? Yeah, so I think part of that is definitely, you know, simple barometers of regard around you know, feedback, uh, the solutions we've deployed, are they useful? You know, the survey results and, and understanding the customer journey map that goes through engagement with BIS, that, that's definitely critical, of course. Um, I think another means of measurement is not just touch point and engagement with the digital products, but actually um, <clears throat> the usefulness. Are we getting useful information and, and um, are folks actually using the tools appropriately and effectively like they, they need to or want to. Um, if they're not, then, you know, that's a different story altogether. And then we have to you know go back to the drawing board. I think another thing I want to probably do is, you know, the, the, the customer is unique in our case because it's not just um, the private sector that engages with us, but, you know, you've got our federal partners that we work with and 
and and our internal customers and so trying to it's not as simple as everyone thinks it is of like creating a, a one one all solution um it's almost as if you have to create these different sets of solutions that can interact and work together but more importantly address the needs of of each client base as we work with them over, over time and you know that's a I'm still getting my head wrapped around some of the needs of BIS, but you know, it's right now the foundational piece was just getting them equipment that and, and digital solutions that worked to be more productive in the first place. Awesome. Um, do you have any, any stemming on from that, any advice you want to share with industry, any of the vendors that um, would like a chance to share some of the technology that they have to advance your mission um any words of encouragement of how they can engage with bis from industry yeah, and well, management? for for bis or commerce i think that the big thing i would say again is, is like understand our business needs and business requirements there for bis we're really unique we're a very unique beast and um uh now i'm not saying that um uh, but we're so unique that it has to be custom. No, God, no. There's a lot of commercial off-the-shelf solutions that we can utilize. But understanding the business requirement needs for BIS and where BIS is currently and where it wishes to be a few years from now is going to be crucial. And so, you know, to be honest with you, I, I, I had to make sure we just had emails working in the first place. When I arrived, the email systems were continuously collapsed every few weeks because it was on, on outdated old server platforms that were on-premise and you know, 12 plus years old. Um, so I, I just needed stuff to work. That, that was my, that was phase one for me was to get real solutions that would work reliably and, and, and not cause an uproar every few days. Um, and we, we finally got there. But, and part of that was, if I, look, when I arrived, most of the bureaus still had Windows 7 devices. Yeah. Uh, and, and everyone was like, when I told folks that, they're like, wait, what? And I said, yeah, they're on Windows 7. And thank God for Andre Mendez and his team to help support my team in getting the deployment of Windows 10 dev devices out the door. And we, we got that done by December, you know, and, and we were doing this in a pandemic. So we were doing this in a remote kind of virtual state of like transferring and getting people new machines and whatnot. But like I, my, my goal for, for the first six months on the job so far was just to get people equipment that worked worked well and was reliable and could help them be able to do just the basics of what their work requires. It's a big undertaking you have there. <laughs> yeah, it's why like with the email migration, I mean, we're, almost, we're more than 50% done now, but that, that, that in itself was, was, was a piece of work. Again, the, the, the systems were, I'm modernizing with my team is 12 plus years old. So I had to get emails to work properly. I had to get, Windows 10 devices out to everyone. Um, and then I also have to get mobile phones out to everyone, which we're in the process of doing that too. And so we, there, there was a lot of Herculean efforts that have happened over the last six months. And, and it couldn't have been possible, possible or done without the team. The, the team. But the team had to be empowered to make those decisions and get it done. And so you know, we've, we had some good leadership that empowered me and the team to, to move forward and drive the ball and said, just go get it done. Like, here, here's, here's the problem. Go solve the problem. Do it properly and do it right. But, but, but go at it. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't second guess. Just get it done. Yeah, I like that directive. 
I appreciate that. Um, well, let's start to wrap things up. Um, I love a quote that you shared earlier about if you this if you're moving this aggressively, assertively on making change happen, people are going to break. You know, maybe people would think you're breaking glass, right? I'm a big fan of breaking glass. I make broken glass messes everywhere. I was yeah. taught to apologize for forgiveness and uh, not ask for permission all the time. That's it's it's works most of the time. Um, what is your philosophy on breaking glass to be um, a little disruptive when appropriate? Yeah, no, yeah, I was totally fine with breaking. I mean, I've broken every job I've been in. I've broken glass, and disruption's good. I just, I've always told folks though, if you're going to break glass, be prepared to have a broom and a panhandle, a panhandle, yeah. so that you can sweep up the glass and and clean up afterwards. I mean, every job I've been in in the last like 10, 15 years of my 20 plus year career has been going up and cleaning up other people's messes. Yeah. Um, and so it's really important to to have that that focus, like if you're gonna be disruptive and you're gonna break glass, it's fine. I'm not against breaking glass, but be ready to clean up and put something in place for the broken glass or or if nothing needs to be put in place, patch it up so that there's no gaping hole. Right, I love it. All right, any last thoughts that you wanna share with the listeners? something that's sure. to you or a thought? Yeah, you know, there's, you know, we were talking earlier, I think there was a quote that my wife had um, referenced to me over the summer as, you know, it's 2020 has been a very trying year for many people. Um, it, and it's still, I, I really liked it a lot. It resonated well with me. It was a quote by James Baldwin and it was, uh, not everything you face can be changed, but nothing can be changed until you face it. I'm paraphrasing the quote. And so basically it's, if you're going to go do good work and be a positive change agent, um, just realize that sometimes it may not come through, but you, you can't make that change happen unless you actually go and try to face it in the first place. So appropriate. So inspirational. And so uh, timely with us moving into the closeout of 2021. I think the restart, are you re a new year is exactly what everybody yeah. needs to be inspired. Yeah. I guess thank you so much for your time. This is really helpful and inspiring and <clears throat> empowering. I love all the things you're doing. I can't wait to celebrate you in the new year with new <laughs> things that are coming your way. And I look forward to meeting you in person someday soon. Well, thank you, Jennifer. And thank you, Kirsten and Team ATARC for the opportunity. It's, it's been a, it was a privilege and pleasure to talk to the community today about my, my perspectives on public sector IT transformation. Thank you.